God bless you all. My name is David. Uh, Pastor Jose is off today uh, on assignment. Uh, it is Sunday, July 11th. Before we close out the third sign of the end times, we will take a step back and look at the environment we are living in. We'll first look at our surroundings and see what we are faced with. You will see that we all have become numb to our sinful existence. We are accepting the outcomes of tragedy and sorrow. Because of that, history repeats itself and we continue down the same path. That is why the signs of the end times exist. So, step one, we'll see newsworthy items. We'll see the triggers of what the end times are all about. Step two, we'll understand better the signs of the end times. So far, we have talked clearly about the first sign. Many will be offended. The second sign, false prophets and false teachers. Then, Pastor Jose introduced the third sign, lovers of themselves. Today, we continue on the third sign. But first, looking at newsworthy items, the triggers, will help illustrate the signs of the end times that we have been talking about. Then we'll dive deeper and investigate further the third sign, lovers of themselves. So buckle up, strap in, and hang on. So what's happening today? First, we'll have a reminder of the first three signs of the end times. Then we'll look at the world we live in today. After that, we'll talk about the delusional state we are in. We'll talk more about the third sign, lover of themselves. We'll talk about the cultural behaviors of the end times. Then we'll talk about famines and pestilence, which is the beginning of sorrows. And we'll talk about hope for those who trust the Lord. Our focus on scripture will be 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, and Matthew chapter 24, verse 3 through 14. So let's talk about the signs of the end times. Earthquakes, famine, wars, lawlessness. Most Christians have some idea of the signs that occur during the time of the Bible calls the last days. Well, guess what? We're living in them now. We've been talking about the end times. First, many will be offended. Second, false prophets, false teachers. And third, recently introduced, was lovers of themselves. And the fourth one we'll be talking about later. Let's first look at the world we live in. That will help us better understand the signs of the end times. We're talking about the triggers. So here's the first item that we're going to talk about. Today we'll take so much conflict, distrust, and unethical behavior for granted. We accept it. We think it's normal. Here's a short snapshot of what things are like today. Here's the world we live in as it pertains to us in the United States. Before we apply the signs to the end times, let's look at the following, the triggers. Number one, gun violence in safe settings. Number two, the global recession of 2008, 2009. Um, number three, language and politics uh, from our leaders. And the leaders are who we follow. It's who we look up to. Number four, uh, Black Lives Matters and George Floyd, that whole issue. Number five, the Me Too movement. Uh, by the way, Bill Cosby was released. Number six, the January 6th uh, insurrection at the Capitol. These are the Capitol riots. 
after we look at this, then we'll understand the signs of the end times, uh, and they'll be more recognizable to us. We'll understand the triggers. So let's look at the first one, uh, gun violence in safe settings. Sandy Hook Elementary School shooting was on December 14, 2012, when a 20-year-old Adam Lanza shot and killed 26 people, including 20 children between 6 and 7 years old. The shootings have become uh, greater, and they've come at a relentless pace. 2020 was the deadliest gun violence year in decades, and so far 2021 is worse. It has unfolded on city streets and in family homes, away from cameras, and far from the national spotlight. Through the first five months of 2021, gunfire killed more than 8,100 people in the United States, about 54 lives lost per day, according to a Washington Post analysis of data from the Gun Violence Archive, a nonprofit research organization. That's 14 more deaths per day than the average toll during the same period of the previous six years. Number two, let's talk about the global recession of 2008-2009. The financial crisis was primarily caused by deregulation in the financial industry. That permitted banks to engage in hedge fund trading with what is called derivatives. The derivative itself is a contract between two or more parties, and the derivative derives its price from fluctuations in the underlying asset. Basically, it's false trust in the financial sector. That's what I just explained. Banks then demanded more mortgages to support the profitable sale of these derivatives based on false trust that came um, about. That created the financial crisis that led to the Great Recession. What was the outcome of the Great Recession? The over 4% decline in gross domestic product, that's the GDP, was only reversed more than three years after the beginning of the recession. During the worst part of the Great Recession, virtually every segment of the U.S. economy was adversely affected. The U.S. households lost an average nearly 5,800 U.S. dollars in income due to reduced economic growth during the acute stage of the financial crisis from September 2008 through the end of 2009. The main culprit of the crisis was financial regulation and supervision. We're talking about stewardship. The entrusted regulators were not good stewards of financial prosperity affecting households. The 2020 recession was the worst recession since the Great Depression. In April 2020, it was already worse than the 2008 recession in its initial ferocity. In November 2020, stock markets recovered and jobs were added back into the economy. In 20 years, the entrusted stewards of our economic financial engine just point fingers towards each other without accountability. It's a behavior that is destructive, that has ripple effects going all the way to our children, and they are our future. The destructive behavior of not having accountability is now considered normal, which is why history repeats itself. And number three, language and politics, you know, from our leaders. Cursing in public, is it legal? Although it's probably not a great idea to curse in public, most states won't punish you for it unless it is followed by threats or fighting words. Some states like Virginia still have laws predating the Civil War, which made profane swearing 
a class four misdemeanor. But today, politicians have a long history of swearing. And they are the leaders we look up to and follow their example. They are our model. Recordings of the White House during the Johnson and Nixon administrations in the 1960s and 70s document extensive presidential profanity. Andrew Jackson reportedly swore so much that his pet parrot started imitating him to the point that it had to be removed <laughs> from Jackson's funeral. But for the most part, uh, politician profanity has been either fleeting or shuttered behind closed doors until recently. Research by analytics from GovPredict found that politicians' use of profanity on Twitter has taken off. In the three years ending in 2016, politicians tweeted a total of 408 profanities. Contrast that with the next three years where profane tweets increased by nearly 15 times to 6,047. 2016 was clearly a turning point for how politicians use language. Number four, Black Lives Matters and George Floyd and, and all the related. Black Lives Matters is a decentralized political and social movement protesting against incidents of police brutality and all racially motivated violence against black people. The police killing of George Floyd, an unarmed black man in Minneapolis, Minnesota, on May 25, 2020, sparked protests, protests across the United States and worldwide, worldwide. Number five, the Me Too movement. By the way, Bill Cosby's release. The Me Too movement, with variations of related local or international names, is a social movement against sexual abuse and sexual harassment where people publicize allegations of sex crimes. One of the biggest effects of the Me Too movement has been to show Americans and people around the world how widespread sexual har harassment, assault, and other misconduct really are. Sexual harassment has hardly been erased in the workplace. Federal law still does not fully protect huge groups of women, including those who work freelance at companies with fewer than 15 employees. And finally, number six, January 6th insurrection. This is at the Capitol. This is the Capitol riots. On Wednesday, January 6, 2021, this year, the United States Capitol in Washington, D.C. was stormed during a riot and violent attack against the U.S. Congress. A mob of violent rioters attempted to overturn results in the 2020 presidential election by disrupting the joint session of Congress assembled to count electoral votes to formalize the president-elect's victory. Five people died either shortly before, during, or after the event. One was shot by Capitol Police, one died of a drug overdose, and three succumbed to natural causes. More than 140 people were injured. The assault on the Capitol generated substantial global attention and was widely condemned by political leaders and organizations both in the United States and internationally. As part of the investigations into the attack, the FBI opened more than 400 case files and more than 500 subpoenas and search warrants have been issued. More than 500 people have been charged with federal crimes. Dozens of people present in Washington, D.C. were later found to be listed in the FBI's terrorist screening database. Did you get that? Dozens of people present in Washington, D.C., were later found to be listed in the FBI's terrorist screening database. And next, 
Let's talk about COVID-19 and the emerging violence. Many of us are facing challenges that can be stressful, overwhelming, and cause strong emotions in adults and children. Public health actions such as social distancing are necessary to reduce the spread of COVID-19, but they can make us feel isolated, lonely, and can increase stress and anxiety. Beyond getting sick, many young people's social, emotional, and mental well-being has been impacted by the pandemic. Trauma faced at this developmental stage can continue to affect them across their lifespan. Emerging data shows an increase in calls to domestic violence helplines in many countries since the outbreak of COVID-19. Sexual harassment and other forms of violence against women continue to occur on our streets, in public spaces, and online. The COVID-19 pandemic has only intensified violence against women and girls, particularly in, but not limited to, the domestic sphere. Stay-at-home measures are compounding perpetrators' use of mechanisms of power and control to isolate victims. Unemployment, economic instability, and stress may lead offenders to feel a loss of that power, which in turn may exacerbate the frequency and severity of their abusive behavior. The world we live in makes us think we are normal. Think about it. Think about it. Gun violence in safe settings, language in political elections, violent protests for uh, Black Lives Matter and George Floyd and others, the Me Too movement, the January 6th insurrection at the Capitol riots, COVID-19 and emerging uh, violence. If you don't think about it, we become numb to it. We accept it as normal. That in itself is not normal. That is delusional. We are practically in a state of psychosis. This is when a person cannot tell what is real from what is imagined. Today, we accept the ethical past as not normal. We accept the past as being too strict rather than being of order and of good taste. Years ago, the LGBTQ was frowned upon. Today, it's celebrated with parades and national days of recognition. It even gets presidential recognition. In June 1st, this year, June 1st, there was a proclamation. This is a formal document that was signed. And uh, it says near the end, Now, therefore, I, Joseph R. Biden, Jr., President of the United States of America, by virtue of the authority vested in me by the Constitution and the laws of the United States, do hereby proclaim June 2021 as lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer pride month. This proclamation spread throughout the world. In his speech, the president said, and I quote, this is a quote, this month pride flags uh, are flying. As some of my friends in our last administration, in the Obama-Biden administration, who are openly gay, they are flying in more than over 100, 130 U.S. embassies around the world. Did you hear that? 130 embassies. That means it has acceptance from 130 countries. Think about it. What should we know about the end times and what, if anything, should we do to live out our faith in the midst of these turbulent times? Today, we are a culture without faith, a culture disconnected from the faith that gave life to it in the first place, and thus, ultimately, a fragile culture. The continuing coverage of the signs of the end times include Many will be offended. That's the first sign. We've talked about that. The second, 
is false prophets and false teachers. Recently introduced by Pastor Jose is the third sign, lovers of themselves. And then later we'll talk about uh, the fourth sign. But we t what we've just established were the triggers so that as we talk about the signs of the end times, you understand the triggers. Today, I continue with the third sign that Pastor Jose has already introduced, lovers of themselves. So today's agenda is the second of Timothy, chapter 3, verse 2, describing lover of themselves. We'll use that as our foundation. Then we'll talk about the end time cultural behaviors. After that, we'll look at the book of Matthew, chapter 24, which talks about the end times. And number four, uh, we'll talk about the beginning of sorrows, which is the famines and pestilence. And number five, we'll talk about trusting in the Lord. And let's take a look at the first one, which is lovers of themselves. In 2nd of Timothy, chapter 3, verse 2, people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy. And that's in 2nd of Timothy, chapter 3, verse 2. So what did the scripture talk about? It talked about eight different types of behaviors. Eight. One, lovers of themselves. Two, lovers of money. Three, boastful. Number four, proud. Number five, abusive. Number six, disobedience to their parents. Number seven, ungrateful. And number eight, unholy. First, people will be selfish rather than serving others. By being selfish, actions of deception and manipulation take place so that a person can take advantage of their own needs without the thought of others. They focus on their own comforts. Second, evil people will be obsessed with wealth. Material things are not evil in and of themselves, but the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, the scripture reads, For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. These are people, that's 1 Timothy uh, chapter 6, verse 10, these are people who put focus on material things like a big house and a car. Unfortunately, they show them off in a way that shows you who their God is. Anything that puts attention away from God is a form of idolatry. Third, these people will be proud, meaning they are preoccupied with people noticing them in their actions. This is related to concepts such as arrogance, but puts the expectation on others. A proud person not only thinks highly of themselves, they expect other people to demonstrate approval. So what are the characteristics of a prideful person? There's seven of them. Pride is being selfish. Number two, thinking excessively about self. Number three, pride's base is too much self-love. Number four, thinking the worth of ourself is higher than it actually is. Number five, it's a self-worship. Number six, preoccupation with our image or self. And number seven, pride is narcissism, in love with our image or self. Now let's talk about the fourth one. Fourth, such people will be arrogant. This literally means putting oneself above others. Being arrogant means overbearing pride or self-importance. Another example of arrogance is when a person thinks he is never wrong. The definition of arrogant is someone who is full of self worth or self-importance and who tells and shows 
that they have a feeling of superiority over others. <clears throat> no one likes to be around an arrogant person since it is a quality that does not attract people. Yet some people may be arrogant and find it difficult to recognize it. Here are a couple of signs you are arrogant. Number one, if you're constantly late. There's nothing absurd in being or showing up late once in a while. This may be a bad habit on your part. However, when you constantly do this intentionally, this could be a sign that you are arrogant because you seem to feel like your time is more valuable than that of others. Number two, you interrupt others a lot. When you interrupt others a lot to show you you have something more important to say than what others are saying, it means you have a little regard for the opinion of others, and this could be a sign of arrogance. Fifth, fifth, the fifth one. Fifth, these people will be abusive. These people will be abusive. So fifth, these people will be abusive. The types of abusive behavior are designed to imitate and control the victim. The abuser may deny that they have occurred or blame the victim for making him or her act in a negative manner. Uh, for example, controlling through jealousy, blame others to take attention off, threatens to report to authorities on someone, uh, such as uh, calling the police, the IRS, or immigration services. Uh, they use force in arguments, uh, physical assault, those kinds of things. Uh, sixth, these wicked ones would break the commandment to honor one's parents. Exodus chapter 20 verse 12 says, Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. This is a common thread for those who despise authority. Children who do not respect their parents typically do not respect anyone. Just listen to our youth. Look at how parents respond. Just observe the lack of obedience. And seventh, they will be ungrateful or unthankful. This closely relates to the ideas of selfishness and arrogance. Those who are ungrateful typically feel entitled to certain things rather than being thankful when they receive. They are angry when they are not. An example of entitlement is someone who believes they deserve better treatment, better service, and better circumstances than others around them without merit. People who suffer from entitlement issues often don't have logical reasoning for why they feel they should have better treatment. Self-entitlement is when an individual perceives themselves as deserving of unearned privileges. These are the people who believe life owes them something, a reward, a measure of success, a particular standard of living. Researchers in the field of psychology who study entitled individuals define entitlement as a personal characteristic in which someone has a persuasive, or I should say, a pervasive sense of deservingness. Um, entitled individuals think they deserve more than other people, even when they really aren't better than others are. The entitlement mentality is defined as a sense of deservingness or being owed a favor when little or nothing has been done to deserve special treatment. It is the you owe me attitude. Entitlement is a narcissistic personality trait. Eighth, these depraved people will be unholy, not truly des desiring to live according to God's truth. God is described in the Bible as holy, which means set apart. Exodus chapter 15 verse 11 and Isaiah uh, chapter 6 verse 3 illustrates that. In contrast, these evil people are unholy, immersed in the fallen world. 
This echoes an illustration that the Apostle Paul uses in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 20 through 21. And I read, In a large house there are articles not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for special purposes and some are for common use. Those who cleanse themselves from the latter will be instruments for special purposes made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. God gives us a great invitation in these two verses. In his great house, there are only two sorts of vessels. Vessels for honorable purposes or vessels for dishonorable purposes. You are either one or the other. God calls you to make the choice. Which one will you be? So here's a review summary of 2nd of Timothy chapter 3 verse 2, which reads, People will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, and unholy. So number one, lovers of themselves. Number two, lovers of money. Number three, boastful. Number four, proud. Number five, abusive. Number six, disobedient to their parents. Number seven, ungrateful. And number eight, unholy. So we're done with second of Timothy. Next, we're going to talk about the end time cultural behaviors. That's what we're going to talk about now. The end time cultural behaviors. And there's four of them that I'm going to bring up. Four of them. Number one, vulgar language. Number two, loss of decency. Number three, family at jeopardy. And number four, sexual immorality. So again, vulgar language, loss of decency, family at jeopardy, and finally, sexual immorality. Number one, let's talk about number one, vulgar language. Vulgarity, in the sense of vulgar speech, can refer to language which is offensive or obscene. The most associated with the verbal form of vulgarity is cursing. This is the word most associated with the verbal form of vulgarity. It's cursing. Vulgarity is offensive to good taste or moral, or moral because they are gross or obscene. But now it's been embedded into everyday common language. The definition of vulgar is something that is in poor taste, that lacks in sophistication, that is rude or unrefined. As I work around the world, people say I talk funny. They say I am missing words in my speech. These are people just learning English. They know the cursing swear words better than I do. They even use them grammatically, correct in the correct terms of how Americans use vulgarity. I asked them how they became an expert. Streaming TV on Netflix. <laughs> and our children are exposed to this. Today, when adults hear a young child use inappropriate language, they usually either laugh or are shocked and do not respond. This can be confusing to the child and may make it harder to address the issue later on. In America, they have the right, as Americans, to cuss. It's generally frowned upon, but not wrong or illegal. Over time, it is allowed. The language you hear on TV from the 1950s is different from today. Do you see the direction we are heading towards? The definition of decency relates to the personal quality of decency is one of honesty, good manners, and respect for other people. Years ago, kids were taught to treat others with respect and consideration. It relates to the importance of treating others with dignity. As a community, it's about mutual respect. Over time, decency has referred to manners, but today decency is mainly a strong sense of right and wrong and a high standard of honesty. When a crime or dictator does horrible things, people assume they have no sense of decency. 
When a tasteless or violent TV show becomes popular, some people wonder if society has lost its sense of decency. We see the devaluing of integrity in the workplace, in politics, in friendships, in romantic relationships. There is a growing trend of manipulation and deception driven by selfishness. The greed-driven success comes from a flavor of underhandedness that has grown more acceptable than before. People have greater and greater difficulty being honest and instead find it easier to say what the other person wants to hear face-to-face and then reveal their real intentions and feelings via their actions, failing to deliver or by reversing themselves later. This dangerous and disturbing trend will be harmful and erode trust. That's the world we are living in. Granted, politicians were not always the most virtuous people, but they at least attempted to project images and honesty and integrity. TV shows in the distant past had a value system that depicted people who would follow the golden rule and do the right thing with respect to the rights and feelings of others. That brings us to today. TVs, movies, streaming content, and video games are loaded with gross violence. Police are depicted violating rights and beating confessions from suspects uh, for what they see as the greater good. People are slaughtered in great numbers with no regard from the sanctity of life. Is it any wonder that mass shootings are occurring with increasing frequency? Next, we'll talk about family at jeopardy. And here is a question. What are we talking about related to a family at jeopardy? It's about broken families, unhappy marriages, unhealthy relationships, Divorced couples, abused spouse, husband, wife, child, dysfunctional children, troubled teenagers, and struggling, frustrated parents. A broken family is a unit where the family members have a significant emotional problems with one another. As a child, you don't realize it, but this environment affects our life changing. There could be abuse or neglect, and there's definitely a lack of support for a child or children in the family. Today, we see broken families. Let's be real. Now listen to this statistic. Divorce is greater than 50%. People are choosing not to get married and live in fornication. This way they have a back door. The institution of marriage teaches us that in marriage it's not about you. It's about your spouse and children. A large population of people today come from broken families. The emotional stress of a divorce alone can be enough to stunt your child's academic progress. But the lifestyle changes and instability of a broken family can contribute to poor educational outcomes. When you come from a broken family, it feels like you're isolated and cut off from the rest of the world. Being so distant to a parent or a sibling often pressures you into feeling like you need to deal with it by yourself. It hurts because it's sometimes difficult to understand why your family is like this. Here are some signs of an unhealthy relationship. Number one, physical abuse. Your partner pushes you, hits you, or destroys your things. Number two, control. Your partner tells you what to do, what to wear, or who to hang out with. And number three, humiliation. Your partner calls you names, puts you down, or makes you feel bad in front of others. Now, let's go to sexual immorality. Sexual immorality. First of all, immorality is a violation of moral laws, norms, or standards. It refers to an agent doing or thinking something they know or believe to be wrong. Let's just say it. Sexuality is God's design. He alone can define the parameters for its use. The Bible is clear. 
that sex was created to be enjoyed between one man and one woman who are in a covenant marriage until one of them dies, as we see in Matthew chapter 19, verse 6. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Biblically, sexual immorality is defined as any activity, uh, and this is in the realm of sexuality, of course, uh, that lies outside a marriage relationship. And biblically, a marriage relationship is defined as one man and one woman. Sexuality is God's sacred wedding gift to human being. Any expression of it outside those parameters constitutes abuse of God's gift. Abuse is the use of people or things in ways uh, that they were not designed to be used. The Bible calls this sin. Adultery, premarital sex, pornography, and homosexual relations are all outside of God's design, which makes them sin. Unfortunately, times have changed, and what was wrong in biblical times is no longer considered sin. In the New Testament, the word most often translated sexual immorality is pornea. This word is also translated as whoredom, fornication, and adultery. It means surrendering of sexual purity, and it is primarily used of premarital sexual relations. From the Greek word, we get the English word pornography, stemming from the concept of selling off. Sexual immorality is the selling off of sexual purity and involves any type of sexual expression outside the boundaries of a biblically defined marriage relationship. And that's in Matthew chapter 19, verse 4 through 5. And the scripture reads, Haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female, and said, For this reason man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This scripture relates to the institution of marriage created by God and written in the Bible. We as a people forgot that. So what did we just talk about? We talked about the end times cultural behavior. Number one, vulgar language. Number two, loss of decency. Number three, the family is at jeopardy. And number four, sexual immorality. We finished talking about the end times cultural behavior. Now we will talk about what we can learn from Matthew chapter 24 about the signs of the end times. So let's take a look at what Matthew chapter 24 talks about. What can we learn from that? So Matthew chapter 24, verse 3 through 14, these are the signs of the end times. So let me read that. Matthew chapter 24, verse 3 through 14. And the scripture reads, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of age? Jesus answered, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and I will deceive many. And will deceive men. I am the Messiah and will deceive many. The scripture reads, you will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are the beginning of birth pains. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. And many false prophets will appear and deceive and many people because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. And this 
gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. So let me give you a summary of uh, Matthew chapter 24, but the whole chapter, because it explains more. Let, let's talk about Matthew chapter 24. So first, Jesus teaches them that they should take care not only to be uh, deceived by people who falsely came, uh, claim to come as his representative after he has left them. He warns people of that. He tells them that although many terrible things will happen that will alarm them and cause them to think that the world is ending, these will not be true signs. The events he predicts includes wars, famines, and earthquakes. He tells them that the disciples themselves will be hated, tortured, and killed because of their devotion to Jesus. He explains that many of his followers will fall away and betray the rest, and that false prophets will come and deceive many. Jesus teaches that those who stay true to him and his teaching will be saved, and that the world will not end until the good news of, the, of God's kingdom is proclaimed to the whole world. But when the world does end, it will be violent and sudden like lightning. His followers must not waver or turn back, but continue to follow God's teaching. He tells them that they must not deviate from what he himself has taught them, even if false prophets give seemingly credible signs. Jesus predicts signs like the darkening of the sun and the moon, and then tells them he will return in glory. He says he will send his angels to gather his true followers to him. Though the world will pass away, his teachings will remain true, a true guide for their survival. Jesus tells them that only God the Father knows when the end of the world will come, so that they should be ready at any time and always live in a way he has taught them. In this way, they will be sure of eternal life in the kingdom of heaven. Now, let's talk about famines, pestilence, such as COVID-19. We'll use that as an example. There are other examples, such as uh, the Spanish flu over a, more than 100 years ago. But while the term pandemic is a modern term and never used in scriptures, the Bible does use ancient Hebrew and Greek words for pestilence and plagues at least 127 times. Pestilence means a deadly and overwhelming disease that affects an entire community. The Black Plague, a disease that killed over 30% of Europe's population, was certainly a pestilence. Pestilence is also one of the four horsemen, horsemen of the apocalypse in the book of Revelation. While not every use of the words pestilence and plagues in the Bible refer to a terrible infectious disease, many of the references do. Throughout the Bible, we see repeated examples of God using diseases to accomplish his divine and sovereign purpose. Because Pharaoh refused to set the Israelites free, God decided to punish him, sending ten plagues onto Egypt. These included the plague of blood. God ordered Aaron to touch the river Nile with his staff, and the waters were turned to blood. So what are God's sovereign purposes for using such terrible diseases? Uh, number one, it could be uh, executing judgment on an individual, a nation, or many nations for chronic unrepentant sin. We see that in the Bible. Uh, the next one, warning other in individuals and nations that they too could face divine judgment for chronic uh, unrepentant sin. Uh, and then finally, shaking an individual nation or many nations so that they will wake up from spiritual slumber or rebellion, repent of their sins, and turn in faith to a holy, personal, biblical, healthy relationship with God. In the Gospels, Jesus Christ warns his disciples that pestilences will be one of the signs of the last days of the human history, a time of shaking the world to wake up and realize that Christ's return to judge and reign over the earth is increasingly imminent. 
We've been talking about Matthew chapter 24. It tells us a lot. Now let's check out Luke chapter 21, verse 10 through 12. Luke chapter 21, verse 10 through 12. In this passage, we learn the same thing as we learned in Matthew chapter 24. So here is Luke chapter 21, verse 10 through 12. And the scripture reads, Then he said to them, Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be great earthquakes in various places and famines and pestilences. And there will be fearful sights and great signs from heaven. But before all these things, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. You will be brought before kings and rulers for my name's sake. The Lord re God repeatedly warns the nations of the world beyond Israel that terrible diseases would be inflicted upon themselves in the future, both as judgment for the chronic unrepentant sin and to shake the nations and draw them to the Lord. No fewer than 12 times in the book of Revelation, God warns us that terrible pestilence and plagues will come to the nations of the earth as part of his judgment of sin. This is before the second coming of Jesus Christ. This period is known as the Great Tribulation. That's what it's called the Great Tribulation, and it will involve the most devastating period of divine judgment for unrepentant sin in all of human history. In Revelation chapter 7, verse 14, the scripture reads, I answered, sir, you know, and he said, these are, are they who have come out of the Great Tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And that's in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14. Plagues are a way that God seeks to get our attention and give attention to God. They are an opportunity, an opportunity for reflection about how we live and a reminder we are not gods ourselves. There is hope for those who trust the Lord. There is hope for those who trust the Lord. In Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 7, But blessed is the one who trusts in the Lord, whose confidence is in him. And that's in Jeremiah chapter 17 verse 7. Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 7. So to trust is to believe in the reliability, truth, ability, or strength of something. So when it comes to trusting God, that means believing in his reliability, his word, his ability, and his strength. The Bible says that God cannot lie. It says God always keeps his promises. Trusting in him means believing what he says. Trusting God is more than a feeling. It's a choice to have faith in what he says. This is true even when your feelings or circumstances would have you believe something different. God does not change. He is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. God is worthy of your trust. Trusting God is living a life of belief and obedience to God even when things are difficult. Because God loves you, you can show your trust in him by praying about all your feelings with him. Don't let your emotions rule your life. Bring them to God so he can help you. God is not disappointed or frustrated by your struggles, doubts, or pains. He cares about you, and you can trust God with those things. When you trust, you go to God in his word when life is hard. You also act on obedience and trust that God will ultimately take care of you. In trust, God will give you favor and provision to you. You don't do this perfectly, but God is kind and patient with you while learning to trust him. So what happened today? What did we do today? Let's talk about that. We've been seeing signs of the end times. Number one, many will be offended. Number two, false prophets. 
Today, uh, our big discussion was the third sign, lovers of themselves. And the fourth sign, well, that's coming soon to a resurrection center near you. So what was our journey today? What, what did we cover today? First of all, we, we started off with, um, with a trigger. We, we talked about the triggers of the, the world, uh, of what's bringing us to the end times. Then we had a reminder of the first three signs of the end times. We took a look at the world we live in today, you know, the triggers. We, t uh, we Number three, we talked about the delusional state we are in. Number four, we talked more on the third sign of the end times, that's lovers of themselves. Number five, we talked about the cultural behaviors of the end times. Number six, we talked about famines and pestilence, that's the beginnings of sorrows. And, and number seven, we talked about hope for those who trust in the Lord. Our focus on scripture was on 2 Timothy chapter 3 verse 2 and Matthew chapter 24 verse 3 through 14. Um, let's, let's pray now. Let's pray now. So um, raise your hands and close your eyes uh, and, and let's pray together, shall we? Dear Lord, you tell me to put away, to put my trust in you when I'm afraid. Come into me, dear God, and fill me with your Holy Spirit. I put my trust and my faith in you because I know that nothing is impossible with you. I believe in the power of your hand. I believe in your intervention. I believe that you are Lord. You are the God most high. You are the creator of heaven and earth. I place all my faith in you. You strengthen me. Your holy force keeps my spirit alive and burning fiercely for you. I know that with you, I can overcome anything. Thank you for remaining faithful to your chosen people. Thank you for guiding me in my life and helping me to become a vessel for your will. I pray that I continue to put my faith and trust in you because you know all things. You know what the hearts of your people need. And I know you will help me through whatever this life brings. Dear Lord, you strengthen me. Thank you, God, for guiding me in my life and helping me to become a vessel for your will. I pray that I continue to put my faith and trust in you because you know all things. Guide my actions so that I can live by faith and have a life in you, God, abundantly and eternally. Cleanse my thoughts of impurities, dear God. Keep my eyes fixed on you and you alone. Amen, amen, amen. I thank you for your time. My name is David, and this is the Resurrection Center.